2: Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalenghi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry.
3: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage
1: you... To subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation. Perhaps never before, as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs
2: £5 a month.
1: Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed.
2: So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode.
0: Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, a producer at Intelligence Squared, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, we're joined by Professor Mark Blythe of Brown University to discuss the economic ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic. He spoke to Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist and head of Economist Radio, and together they answered questions like How long can we afford the lockdown? What does the pandemic mean for the future of globalization? And can our economies ever return to a quote unquote normal? So it was a really interesting conversation, and if you like it, you might also like Mark Blyde's book, which is coming out at the end of June, entitled Angrynomics, all about rising stress and anger in our societies and economies. So now to the episode.
3: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor at The Economist and Head of Economist Radio. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and online events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Mark Blythe, political scientist and professor of international political economy at Brown University. He's co-author of Angrynomics, a forthcoming book exploring the rising tide of anger across the world. So we're going to have a bit of a free-flowing conversation today, Mark, about the impact of coronavirus and the pandemic on the economy in Europe and the United States. So I think that we should maybe start with where you are, with the United States, but it would be nice if we could branch out as well because we'll have listeners across the world. Put it into some context, first of all. How does this compare with the financial shocks that we've experienced either in our own lifetimes in the past or more broadly?
1: So I think the first thing to think about is it's not a financial shock. So the odd thing about this which is a direct response to the policies that were enacted after the last financial crisis, is that the banks are the one bit of the system that seem to be relatively stable. Of course, we'd left them to their own devices. There's lots of things they'd like to do with that dead capital that we insist that they have as capital buffers. But that's the one part of the economy that doesn't seem to be totally wrecked at this point. So it's an odd type of financial shock. What's actually going on is more than also what it's called as a a supply shock and a demand shock. It's more like a wartime shock, but it's a very odd wartime shock. Because during a war, there's an enormous amount of capital destruction, which leads to unemployment, which leads to a collapse in demand, and then a truncation in supply. But what we've got for the first time ever is up to 1.5 billion workers worldwide sequestered at home under government orders So there's a huge collapse in demand, but there's no actual capital destruction. The restaurants are still there. The plant and equipment is still there. So it's a very odd type of shock, and it's actually not comparable to those financial shocks.
3: When you say it's not comparable to previous financial shocks, to what extent are you seeing that with a US prism, it's not so many years at all since the financial crash and epicenter of the United States but but spread out in terms of its impacts beyond so how much of what you're saying is led by what you're seeing in the United States and how much would you say the analysis is a global one
1: well as you can hear from my accent I'm a proud American citizen Uh, So it's certainly colored by those American lenses. It's also colored by American lenses in the sense that the global response, despite what's happening in domestic politics with Trump and the WHO and these sorts of things, is being led by the Fed. And the Fed's actions are essentially putting a floor under asset prices in American markets. The swap lines and given dollar dependencies are liquidating the uh, other central banks and allowing them to continue their operations. So I think it's fair to actually have a very American start to this, but I think that the analysis goes global. If I am to move into that analysis, I would put it this way. Um, Something we've known for a very long time is that small open economies tend to have very large welfare states. The reason they do this is not because they're all lefties and they feel very generous. It's because these are shock absorbers for the inevitability of downturns or other exogenous shocks to trade. Hence why the Scandinavians, very open on the technological frontier, have very robust welfare states. But what we've done under globalization over the past 20 years is to add another layer of complexity onto this. And if we think about globalization as the optimization of redundancy, getting rid of redundancy in systems so that you have just-in-time supply, global supply chains, so, all those sort redundancy,
3: of things. redundancy for those who haven't been sitting at the back of your seminars or spiritually at the back of your <laughs> seminars, if they You mean, what, the kind of uh, waste in the system, well, am I right?
1: yeah, not just waste in the system. I mean, think about it this way. The, the, the British government... Capacity I'm, waste. Yeah, but more than that. The British government, until recently, measured the efficiency of the NHS by certain metrics. One of those metrics was the number of ICU beds you don't have. So essentially, redundancy is anything you're not using. From the point of view of an American bank having capital buffers is redundant. That is to say, I could be putting that capital to use. I could be earning more profits. And we've moved through a society that basically has, if you're small, large domestic welfare states as shock absorbers, to everyone being enmeshed in a system that's very tightly coupled and which redundancies are seen as bad. Now, that's fine so long as everything's going fine. But when you get hit with an enormous shock like this, that suddenly becomes a problem.
3: Right. So let's talk about the way that that impacts on the response to the crisis. Because it might say, well, in that case, you have to be prepared for everything. And you would endlessly be bogging yourself down with capacity. And there might be arguments for that, but there have to be some limitations on it as well. Mm -hmm. Where would you see the US policy response leading now we know the fed leads the responses if you like the kind of formal global lead in some ways uh, on on the response in terms of the economy and banking but what do you reckon to the response that you're seeing is it the right one
1: i think it's moving in the right direction and it's very interesting to contrast the British government's position now as opposed to 10 years ago when they faced a financial shock. The response then with Osborne and Cameron was um, a decision to go with uh, budget tightening, cutting budgets, sweating about the debt and the deficits. And this time around, the realization is with essentially the entire economy, 80% or so, being dependent on consumption, if you lock up at consumption, the one thing you have to do is make sure the wages are still paid. So that's a complete policy turnaround that you see in the British space. The American space, there's bits of that. It's more skewed towards bailing corporates and putting a floor under asset prices. Whether that's politics or whether that's plumbing, by which I mean, is this a deliberate choice to favor business over workers? Or is it the fact that the Fed is good at getting money to banks, but it's not very good at getting money to people because it hasn't been asked to do that before? That's an open question. But essentially, the response has been to support consumption, and that is both New and I think actually the right way to do it.
3: Can you support consumption when consumers are very constrained in the activities they can undertake? All of our consumption has fallen, mine's certainly fallen around the household because most of the things I would would like to consume there'd be no point in having anymore. And that's just in the, you know, that's obviously speaking from a, a reasonably good economic position, but consumption has fallen across the piece. So are you actually supporting something? that you cannot really hope to do anything other than scrape off the floor.
1: I think that 's a perfectly valid way of looking at it, because let 's do the counterfactual if you didn't do this, then there'd be literally no point in trying to bail corporations because there would be nothing there for them to if you will uh, to sell to there would be no underlying demand, so it may be scraping off the floor, but at least it 's a floor in that regard but the, I think the bigger thing that you raise there is a very interesting question, which is the longer this goes on, the more the underlying behaviors of people will change. they will adapt to this regardless of their position in the income distribution. And probably the most likely thing is more precautionary savings. And that does mean less consumption going forward. If we then tack that into a world in which large type events, such as soccer matches, the theater, etc., now become problematic, nobody really wants to get on a cruise liner anymore. God knows why the Americans decided to bail out that industry. That makes no sense whatsoever. Then those things come together to produce a world which is a much lower sort of equilibrium rate of consumption. And that's very important going forward. So the longer we're in this position, the more I think the behavior shifts down exactly as you're saying.
3: And that's a really interesting point. The longer we're in this position, as you've just said. So how long do you think we'll be in this position? Position And what would you personally support if your view is that you can support uh, consumption and you can support those at the sharp end of this crisis economically? How long do you think you can continue to do so without having to prod people towards uh, the exit strategy that uh, perhaps a a, a lot of people in the, the health world have warned against getting too far ahead of ourselves about?
1: Yeah, and that's the real trade off. Essentially when you look at the profile of this virus and lots of other viruses, apparently, they basically have the same kind of function over time. That is to say, there's a long, slow run up, and then there's an exponential phase. And what we do with social distancing and all the rest of it is essentially push down the amplitude of that curve, but then it lasts longer in time. And the open question is, which one destroys more GDP? The answer seems to be it's better to do the lockdowns, but then it becomes incredibly expensive. And there's a question of, and this is the big one we don't know the answer to, this particular virus, do we get immunity? Last week, the UN said, no, there's no evidence for this. Do we really get a virus that's effective? We're all assuming that we do. But on the other hand, there isn't one for malaria. The ones for uh, Asian cholera don't really work. So there's many ways in which this could produce become much longer than we think. In those instances, it's an open question as to how long helicopter money these types of uh, financing of consumption can, can continue. If you're the United States, you print the dollar, everybody wants to hold the dollar or dollar assets as the reserve asset. There's infinite demand for uh, government bonds as a safe haven simply because of huge uncertainty. You can probably, in an era of low inflation and negative rates, you can probably run it for longer than we thought possible historically. But it's not a world we want to live in. It's not a world we want to say, yeah, let's do this.
3: Well, it isn't a world we want to live in, and we wouldn't have chosen to be here. And surely that's, I suppose, that's one of the differences with financial crisis 2007-8, where you had a lot of a blame game because it was, in the end, it was kind of economic actors it was banks it was economic actors it was policymakers governments you could point fingers now a fair bit of finger pointing goes on <laughs> around uh, coronavirus, and will continue to do so. But it is exogenous, isn't it, to use the uh, the, the big, lovely, clunky word? I mean, it, it just it has sort of come from somewhere. But it's it's harder to say. Well, you kind of brought this on yourself. So, what's the difference then with dealing with something, whether it's a psychological or a social application of economics, in that situation as opposed to dealing with two thousand seven, eight, nine, and everything that followed in terms of austerity politics and and other options.
1: Well, I think you're exactly right to hone on, if you will, on the morality play that underlines all of our economic experiments. So if we do compare it to the last time, my favourite example of this was Ireland. So Ireland had a, embraced the narrative locally of, oh, we were all partying, we were all in it together, the developers, the government, the whole lot. And in a sense, we had it coming to us. So our ability to accept that narrative meant that they went through the austerity programs of the Troika, but they didn't tear society apart in the same way that Greece did, for example. So there's a, a way in which the way that, the way that we think about what we're undergoing and whose fault is it is actually incredibly important. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't see the reemergence, at least so far, of a large claim that we all need to tighten our belts now because debt's getting out of control. Because there is no one really to blame outside of perhaps labs in China or whatever conspiracy theory you want to embrace. This is just something that's happened. And therefore, the role of government is to basically step up and act as a shock absorber.
3: That's true, it has happened, but there's one argument that is put by anti-globalizers, both actually on the the left and sometimes on the right of the political spectrum, because it's the thing about a a crisis that is still ongoing, if you like, intellectually, is that everyone can get to sort of pick and choose the bits that they think suit their case, Mm -hmm. would be that the pandemic has spread if you like, as the vector of globalisation, spread it across the world, and that therefore you should onshore production much more, you should have much more regional economic focus. Where do you stand on that spectrum?
1: Uh, I try not to stand on it politically so much as empirically. And here's what I mean by that. It is absolutely true that if a novel coronavirus, let's call it COVID 2021, shows up in Jakarta, it can be in LA in as little as 12 hours. And that's important. But there's a question of how much of this is you can control with choice. So let's think about the example of New Zealand. So by all metrics, they did exactly the right thing. They're ending their lockdown, etc. Wonderful. But given the state of the rest of the world, they can forget about tourism receipts for probably the next two years. It's also not clear that the agricultural exports that they, uh, that they uh, thrive on are going to find ready buyers in a world of depressed demand. So it's not about we need to choose to deglobalize. Maybe deglobalization is simply upon us given the nature of the shock.
3: Are you confident that that deglobalization will hit countries of broadly similar economic levels and states of development equally or are there big winners and losers and I'm rather fascinated that you picked out New Zealand there because there is sometimes a narrative that if you've got a, a leader a, a lot of quite centrist people to approve of as in Jacinda I don't know they say well she handled the crisis very well which often means communicated the crisis in a way that I the listener like yes, or yes identify yeah, with mm-hmm. uh, can we agree on that? Absolutely that we absolutely of, yeah, uh, and we might come on to uh, the, the, the president where you're sitting in, in just a moment and what his response means or, or doesn't mean when we cut through the can you bear trump or can't you mm-hmm. and I, that's a really interesting point that you made about new zealand that in a way aspects of deglobalization might choose us rather than the other way around exactly who would come better out of that scenario than others would it be the big players would it be the small and nimble Players, or would we sort of see those sort of tables that we often run in The Economist on who's doing well, who's reforming, whose supply side reforms are working, who's aren't? Might they look very different in a few years?
1: I think they look different. I also think that those sort of reform indices really will lose their, their meaning and their, their cachet as we go through this. And here's why if you're the United States, you're 25% of global GDP. If you do the standard openness calculation on them, they're about 30% open to the global economy. If you take out import competing, you're dropping down to about 15%. So that means 85% of the economy is entirely domestic. If the United States decides to close off, it will hurt, but it will hurt everybody else more, whose growth model depends upon exporting to the United States. So if we'll have a world of- depressed demand going forward that was already possibly in secular stagnation. Let's ignore equity markets going nuts, mainly because of buybacks and financialization. If underlying economies were growing slowly, and now that's ground to a halt, then who suffers the most? I would look at Latin America. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the BRICS nonsense notwithstanding, these are giant commodity exporters.
3: Now you've just you've committed one jargon too many there. What the BRICS The bricks nonsense. Yeah, the BRICS the bricks nonsense. Go on. There are a couple of things I think you need to to, to gloss. go on. Um And I'll just come back perhaps to the equities and the, that that point there about buybacks and 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 equity. But just bricks. You mean this was a, a group of countries. Uh, identified, let me test myself quickly Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, though. South Africa then got a bit dropped from the analysis. Yes. Did I get that right? That's right. Right. So these were emerging economies tipped due particularly well. Now, you've just described them as nonsense. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so without a, a long regressive curve in, into those arguments. Uh-huh. And, Why uh, is it Jim nonsense? O'Neill, I think. Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs was, was the economist behind it. Yeah. Uh, he, can, he can write in and let us know what he thinks. But, uh, but tell me why BRICS and that idea that these were going to be great economies should be now particularly any more nonsense than it was before, if that's your view.
1: Well, very simply, um, ultimately, uh, Jim's original analysis was based upon demography that these countries have much younger profiles. Therefore, as we go through the life cycle, they will consume more. Therefore, they will have higher rates of growth. This occurs at a moment when globalization is taking off. So you have a more complex division of labor. Capital will flood to these places. They're going to be the new thing. Simply didn't happen. What actually happened was capital fled these countries whenever there was a bump. They became more concentrated in commodities rather than less. Russia is an oil pump. Brazil does soybeans. They're trying to sell Embare to Boeing, and it didn't work. So these countries are incredibly- these vulnerable. were problems
3: with the model before. These were problems yeah, with the this, bricks model before this is just, to your mind. And as thrilling as it is, it's probably we're not going to sort of just dwell on bricks for for too long. Enough bricks and mortar. But but now you're saying this this looks particularly flawed. Exactly. This emerging markets model, if I'm reading
1: you correctly. That's correct.
3: In the as you look to the future. Why should that be?
1: Because if we're looking at a world in which you have 30% unemployment and up to a 30% collapse in global GDP over an 18 month period, which is in line with the ILO estimates, then the export markets that those countries rely on simply aren't there. So the glut of vegetables in Florida is indicative of a wider glut of soybeans that's not going to go to China in the same way that it did before. So we'll have this paradox, as usually having these shocks, whereby hunger and the risk of food breakdown in food supply is on the one side. And yet you're destroying surpluses on the other because your export markets aren't there.
3: So you mentioned Latin America as a region that might suffer particularly and you could also see that that connection there with it the sort of economic dependency to a great extent on on its big neighbour anywhere else uh, anywhere else likely to do well or badly particularly given the way that you analyse what's likely to happen in terms of Global demand and deglobalization?
1: Well, again, it's all a question of how long this continues, but let's assume that we're in the, the scenario where there is no obvious vaccine and this continues a lot longer than we would like to have it uh, continue. It's, the upside is all relative in the sense that countries will do slightly better than the ones that do very badly but it's very hard to see an upside in this in terms of, say, well, I think Iceland will do well because they host a huge part of the world's video gaming industry and people stuck at home play video games. All right, but there's only 300,000 of them. That's hardly an upside for the planet. Is there an upside environmentally? Well, the air's getting a bit more clear, but at the same time, if it turns out the the, vi- the virus is airborne, that might be even more of a problem than we hitherto think. So, for me, it's very hard to sit- think about winners and losers. I think it's a question of relative degree- of loss,
3: but if you're a prosperous country, let's look at the Nordics. I sometimes rather naughtily call the goody-goody Scandies in any in any. An crisis. entirely
1: fair description.
3: Thank you, they, th- thank you, because I often then, then get nice notes complaining from all the ambassadors. Uh, so, so we'll see if they're listening. But there's an example: prosperous countries, good welfare welfare systems, uh, as you described, sitting on the map, or at least the way that most people travel. When if you look at travel routes around the world, and particularly business routes, certainly they have had a high amount of business travel. But you know, in its sense, you don't always feel that you have to go to Stockholm to sort of Stockholm will come to you sort of thing. So Are you in a good position if you are somewhere, if you like off that, off the main routes of travel and you're not got that sort of relentless China, US, transatlantic, London perhaps also has looked particularly vulnerable to that. There is a view that that's one reason why the death rate has been less in some countries, which might otherwise be seen as comparable.
1: Yeah, I think that's entirely the case. One of the uh, biggest correlates with the death rate, or rather the inverse of the death rate, is the degree of social trust, which is highest in the Scandinavian countries. Hence, Sweden's lockdown is essentially a lockdown, but it's a voluntary lockdown. And they're able to do this because there's both a belief in science and also a faith in the state and public trust. So I think that that's absolutely correct. Where they're a bit more vulnerable, though, is if we think about how Sweden grows, how Sweden pays for its big welfare state, is it's an export-dependent economy and always has been. So again, if there's a downturn in the sectors in which it exports, which is high tech engineering, but increasingly, uh, services, software, those types of goods, then they could be in trouble. But if at the same time, one of the upsides to this, if it is an upside, is the emergence of a much deeper digital economy, then certain Swedish sectors could be very advantaged by that. So maybe there is an upside rather than just relative decline.
3: Now, what about China-America? Had this not happened, I guess i would been putting you on the, the show today and talking about the global economy, we might have started with what's the state of the great trade war, the standoff, the tariff conflict between China-America. Is it is it coming or going, which is always the question that I always ask our correspondents before they go into the weeds. How does what is happening here and the fact that the virus originated in China and that has led to some hot air, but I think also it would be fair to say it probably has increased some levels of of distrust around China in the world. What do you think that is going to mean in terms of that trade standoff?
1: It hasn't made it any better, but I'm in the camp that says that this was baked into the cake before Trump even got there. A very simple way to think about this is about 20% the capitalization of American equity markets are the big digital corporations. And if you think about the profits of those corporations, they control them through the extraction of value in global value chains, all of which is backed up by a robust system of intellectual property rights. The problem the US has with China fundamentally is they don't like those property rights. They want them, and they're going to try and take them or at least subvert the standards. If you do that, then the differential growth in your economy versus everyone else begins to slow down. And suddenly, the US loses its edge. So I think that this is baked into the cake, regardless of who's in power. Trump makes it worse in the sense that at this point in time, deprived of a stock market to to brag about, his re-election will basically be on identity politics, both domestically and internationally, and saying China, China, China over and over again is a large part of that. But it's not about that. Fundamentally, there are real structural factors underlying this conflict.
3: When you mention equity markets there in that context, some of us might have been rather surprised to see the markets bouncing back now obviously it depends on the day that this podcast is consumed (laughs) there's one thing I've I've learned is one should should never say anything more than three hours notice oh the stock market's looking good today um but there does seem to be a, a degree of robustness there can you explain it
1: well, it might just be a dead cat bounce. If you go back to two thousand and eight, when uh, Bears was it Lehman or Bear went bust? I think it was when Bear went bust. The market sort of adapted that and said, uh, "Oh, it's just one bad apple. It's fine. The rottenness has been purged from the system. We're great." And then the market continued up for I think two months after that before it really went into meltdown mode. So it could be there. It's also simply the fact that the Fed has said, I will buy everything. I'm buying ETFs. I'm buying junk bonds. So you can basically swap out whatever you've got for cash, and then you can buy safe assets. So that will encourage people to get back into the market, because it's better than holding cash. So uh, there are reasons for it to go up. But it's a big question, and I think it's one that we should think about more, when you have a huge part of the world's labor supply under lockdown. Unemployment levels in some countries greater than the Great Depression, and the markets are going up. That doesn't sound right. If if these markets are meant to be in any way connected to the economy that we live in, then that doesn't sound right.
3: And you've been critical about some of that response, and that brings us back to this somewhat mysterious matter of of buybacks. Uh, what do you mean by that? And. As I understood a piece that you wrote that came across as rather critical about this, you seem to be suggesting that in some ways, corporates and investors were getting an undue amount of support. Could you just explain that a bit?
1: Well, let's move from the support first to what a buyback is, right? So basically, once you've done the investments you want to do, you've paid the bills that you have to, you have free cash flow. If you're a company and the only thing you can think to do with your free cash flow rather than invest or try and develop new technologies or get ahead of the competition is to either hand back dividends or buy back your own shares, then you're probably a declining company. Adam Tooze posted a graph on Twitter, which you can find easily from his feed, that makes the claim that if you take out companies buying back their own shares, then basically the US stock market has been flat for the past 10 years. It's simply buying these things back. Now, why would we do this? Well, one of the things that was critical was, was it turns out that 94%, I think it was, or maybe 96% of the free cash flow of the big four American airlines went into buybacks over an eight-year period. That cost $48 billion. Rather than having $48 billion in cash, because cash is a bad thing for corporates to have given optimized balance sheets, they took, those, they took those, they did this as buybacks. Well, they then got a $50 billion bailout. So that seems to be based, Basically, I win; taxpayers lose. Another version of what we saw in the financial crisis with leverage.
3: Are you convinced that another president would have made a different decision or supported a different policy? I should say because it's not really a, a direct decree decision, but it, it, it's a mood and a, a support mechanism that you don't have to.
1: No, agree I don't. With. I don't- but
3: how much of this is Trump? Trumponomics. And how much no, of it, it is simply it,
1: a cult? It precedes Trumponomics. I mean, this, this has been going on for a very long time since the original rule change on buybacks in 1982, but accelerating through the 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, the key thing, if you want to briefly get into it, is the, the metric of earnings per share. Uh, It's absolutely true that buying back your own stock doesn't boost the price except at the margin. But what it does do is concentrate those shareholdings so earnings per share goes up. If you're a CEO or other C-suite member and you're compensated on earnings per share as a key metric, then why not do buybacks? It's so much easier than actually trying to invent real stuff and do real capitalism in the world.
3: You see, I think one reason that this crisis and the economic response to it puzzles some people watching Donald Trump's response is one they're not really sure. if they're, uh, A lot of perhaps people who don't like Donald Trump tend to be more vocal about it, certainly on the coast of America and in, in Europe than those who might see uh, aspects of what he's doing as the right thing. To what extent is there a trump in the response? Or is he, with all the distractions and all the noises off and all the bits that just make Donald Trump Donald Trump, simply doing what many other presidents would have done on supporting policies of any other president's would have done.
1: I think it's the case. I mean, essentially, the Treasury Secretary and the Fed are running the show. The Treasury Secretary seems to get on well with the Democratic leadership, which is why they've been able to actually get things through the Congress, which is quite unusual. To the extent that there's a distinct Trumponomics, economics, it is to sound populist, but then do massive tax cuts which are skewed to the top. That's actually all he's really done economically. That and basically undermine some environmental regulations and anything with Obama's signature must be obliterated. But in terms of a Distinct Trumponomics. I don't think there is one,
3: but he does say, "Get we can get the economy restarted." You sounded as if you thought that the trade-off of that, in terms of deaths and particularly of older people, might be falling on the wrong side of the balance sheet.
1: It's not so much falling on the wrong side. I think it's an impossible counterfactual. So if you do what we're all doing, you destroy GDP. All right, let's assume that we don't do this. We just let it rip. Well, if you let it rip, you will overwhelm your health system completely. The US health system already takes up 20% of GDP. So if we make that bankrupt, it's not clear to me that you would have an economy to go back to. Plus, if you had a massive spike in infections and death, the behavioral response from consumers and workers would be, I'm not going to work, forget about it. So an example of this is uh, yesterday, Trump uh, ordered got the Defense Production Act of 1951 into play to somehow keep workers in meatpacking areas. Meatpackers tend to be marginal-employed migrants, undocumented, and uh, they don't want to go to work. It's not clear to me how an executive order to make hamburger works. It's a
3: very tantalising thought. We'll let leave our audience to mull on that. It's time for a quick break.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash intelligence. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
2: Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared plus our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much.
3: Welcome back. I'm here with Mark Blythe, political scientist at Brown University, and we're delving into what the aftermath of COVID might look like. He's author of a forthcoming book called Nomics. I'm going to bring you back across the Atlantic, if I could, Mark. Uh, you said earlier you were a proud American citizen. It sounds like a very proud Scottish-American citizen to me. You're a fully-fledged European of a Scottish tinge, aren't you?
1: Well, I think I'm kind of a transatlantic citizen. I must be the globalist, which is the object of so much opprobrium these days, because I'm an American citizen. I was raised in the United Kingdom, and I'm also Scottish.
3: You're everything. You're overlapping identities in one glorious uh, package. And the reason I'm bringing you back other than to... Uh, refer to your Scottish origins, is that I'd like to talk to you a bit more about Europe and the policy response in Europe, what it means for a continent that isn't itself divided, and perhaps presents that in a way that sometimes seems a a bit quieter than uh, the United States and its more raucous divisions, but has been certainly is more divided between East and West, North and South than it was. What do you think the future of Europe is? And institutional Europe in particular, how has it been affected by the pandemic?
1: It has been, as we see with the outbreak in Lombardy being the worst in Europe, followed by Madrid, that there has been a great deal of um, effect of the virus in Europe, but particularly in Southern Europe. And once again, we see the advantage of the North Germany has done incredibly well. Nobody's quite clear why it is. Perhaps they're just further along in terms of uh, being back on the curve. And it may get worse. But the northern states seem to do better once again. The southern states seem to do worse, which is basically the story that we've seen since the euro crisis onwards. The politics which has followed this, there was the whole uh, debate over whether they could finally have mutualized assets so that you could have some relief for southern budgets. That was basically torpedoed and then turned into another bag of smoke and mirrors of leverage finance that probably won't happen in big numbers that will never materialize. So in a sense, Europe is doing what Europe does. It's kind of, to use the words of a political science colleague of mine, it's failing forward. Every time it fails, it continues because there's no alternative to get out.
3: So it doesn't sound like the eurozone as you describe it is under immediate threat from the aftermath of, of this crisis, correct?
1: Correct. I mean, the simple way, to, the Hotel California analogy describes it perfectly. If you're Italy and you really feel that what you once thought was this beneficial constraint of joining the euro has really turned into something that which has crushed growth for 20 years, that you have the wrong interest rate, you're, part, you're permanently forced to run a budget surplus, and your, your economy is in terrible shape, how do you get out without destroying national savings? It's just not clear that you can. So you're kind of stuck. It's like a bad marriage.
3: <laughs> it doesn't sound very attractive the way that you're... <laughs> you're you're describing it and surely it brings back to the the forefront those arguments about what would happen in a Eurozone crisis I've always been a somewhat pessimistic kind of mindset when it came to the Franco-German relationship which just presents itself as very strong very stable in the days when we could still hug and kiss and handshake they were the images that we we saw Mr Macron and uh, Angela Merkel Mm -hmm. looking like close buddies but really when you you got down into it you, you saw that there wasn't an agreed way to look at what would happen under severe stresses and strains, such as the, the the eurozone crisis of a few years ago, so you say it's a bad marriage. It sounds a bit like you're well, oh God, you know they're arguing. Mummy and daddy are fighting again, <laughs> but. It, it does sound like it's an extra layer of strain onto something that wasn't performing well anyway.
1: It definitely does. And also, you know, let's move beyond the, the, the old core countries. Last week, the president of Serbia came out and said, I'm, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing, there's no such thing as the EU. It's a joke. There's no solidarity. If I'm going to give thanks to anyone, it's the President G. So this is from somebody who wants to get into the club. So that doesn't augur too well.
3: Yes, except Serbia is really the orientation is probably more towards Moscow or Beijing or a, a bit of both. I mean, it hasn't taken but, its candidacy true, but there's also, you seriously. No, but there's also. There are many countries. My point would be slightly to argue against my own, you know, bias of a moment ago is that there are still many countries who, even if they see the, the Eurozone and in institutional Europe and the EU as, as a big problem, we slightly thinking, well, I better, I'd rather be in it than, than not. And even a country that often sort of misbehaves within sort of EU norms, like Poland, is not heading for the exit door.
1: No, absolutely. So I'm suggesting
3: th- that Serbia is a bit of a quirky example. All right,
1: but I could also say then Hungary. I mean, Hungary has basically declared the, a, an authoritarian regime and an end to any pretense of following EU legal codes. But it hasn't
3: said it wants to leave the EU. It wants to take EU subsidy and still be an authoritarian regime. It does,
1: absolutely. Well, the logic for that is how the EU's been growing for the past 10 years. Essentially, European companies, particularly German companies, didn't globalize their supply chains. They stuck them in Eastern Europe, where you got highly skilled labor, very cheap, and you had good control over your supply lines. So a lot of these countries, Hungary is one of them, essentially run a kind of. Um, shadow exchange rate. They promise to get into the euro, but they're not really going to get into the euro. Uh, they manage to benefit from the export-led growth that they feed into. And ultimately, they support what the northern countries want. The big problem is in the southern countries, France and Spain and Italy are large consumption-driven economies that basically live in a fiscal world with a set of fiscal rules, which discourage that type of model. And that's the source of the split across the north and the south. If All that corona is doing is reinforcing this.
3: What about Corona bonds? I thought Corona bonds were going to be the, the word, word of the year, word we'd, we'd be allowed to have in Scrabble one day, in which, broadly speaking, you know, one way or the other, the richer countries would support or somehow bail out the poorer ones or the southern European, particularly southern European economies. What do you think is happening there?
1: Well, as one of the people that was the signatories in the financial time for now is the time for corona bonds, I should have known better. But the question is, if now is not the time for mutual- Isn't
3: buyer's remorse coming on here, is it, Mark?
1: Well, something like that. But it is one of these things where you say, well, look, if, if this isn't the time for some form of debt mutualisation, you're not adding to your national balance sheets. You set up an SPV. You do specialized debt. The market SPV, loves it. SPV? So you sp- might. Special um, purpose vehicle. All your finance people know what you. this is. But essentially, well, they, you do, they you do may, this. They may
3: indeed, but we're not just broadcasting to them. That's true. <laughs> All
1: right. Go on. <laughs> so basically, you know, you're know, you not doing this through your national treasuries. You're doing it through some kind of supranational authority. The market doesn't want to hold equities. It wants to hold safe assets. Guaranteed government safe assets are good, which is why bond markets are still in place. You You could totally do this. But essentially, the Northern European countries look at, for example, Italy and say, "Okay, so you haven't grown in 20 years. You've got the third largest debt pile in the world, and you want me to back that up by issuing more debt. That's going to be an impossible sale to my public. And in fact, the politics of these northern countries have been such that they've used that as a, a way of justifying what they've done over the past 10 years. So it's going to almost be politically impossible for them to flip now and say, yeah, let's have more debt and let's help out the southerners. So, you know, they're kind of stuck, unfortunately, and that's that.
3: <laughs> that's that. Uh, this is going to go down well when it's, when it's heard in uh, Roman uh, Madrid. What about Brexit and the trade deal talks? We seem to be back as, to some extent, everything has changed and to some extent, very little seems to have yeah. changed. We're back in, in that uncomfortable game. Partly it's sort of a mixture of footsie and, and moving forwards to something but never quite getting there that we saw uh, with the British government and uh, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, each saying they were still too far apart and yes. each blaming the other. What's your hunch here? Does this situation and the fact, when we get back to economic activity, there's going to be some, shall we say, some desperation to to export and particularly not to have any more friction than we need in the system. Does that actually help Britain get its deal uh, across the line?
1: It's, I would put this in, a, in an even bigger frame, which is, if we have 18 months to two years of lockdowns, corona, mass unemployment, government subsidies, etc., does anyone even really care about Brexit at this point? beyond the people who really really care about brexit at this point
3: well you have to care about it in terms of a trade deal don't you whether you do or not and i'm sort of uh, but then you're you know, could... sort of taking right but the decision to avoid kind of the the brexit wars conversation because you know why we fight something that people have got their positions on pretty clearly but what about the deal itself i mean something has to happen it's there on paper it's got all those complexifications yeah, exactly. about about uh the, the north uh, the northern ireland border etc but Something has to happen or not happen. So I suppose I'm really asking for your hunch on whether it it means, as you say, only the obsessives care and the deal goes across the line or that the EU has to sort of dig in and hold on to positions that it came up with before.
1: I don't think the EU has to hold on. And I think that no, it's in no one's interest to do stupid stuff, to quote the Obama doctrine. And that still holds, I think, in intra-European dealings. But I think there's a kind of Zeno's paradox on this. Every time you take a step forward, you still have half a step to go. And every time you take half a step, you still have a quarter step to go. And eventually, (laughs) you can be really close, but never actually get there. And that might be. Uh, It wouldn't be untypical for the British or for the Europeans to use fudge as an endgame.
3: Do you think that is more likely than leaving without a deal or on WTO, on World Trade Organization rules, on the very kind of basic, you know, the bargain basement uh, trade deal?
1: Working from the basis of don't do stupid stuff is a good rule. I would say that's the case. However, we're not above doing stupid stuff.
3: (laughs) Right. Got it. Now let's look perhaps as we come to the end of our conversation to what the longer term takeaways and solutions might look like. You have raised the prospect of rethinking our economies now that, that a lot of initiatives like the Green New Deal often seen as being quite hard to deliver. Again, and there are, you know, there are enthusiasts and even fanatics of all stripes in this in this argument. You seem to be suggesting that we can change normal, that the new normal won't be the old normal. Why not?
1: Because it's impossible to go back to the old normal. Again, if we do this for 12 or 18 months, if there's no vaccine, if it becomes part of the furniture, the damage wrought just from the unemployment we have just now, the demand destruction, is absolutely huge. Entire sectors are not going to come back. Are you going to buy airline stocks anytime soon? I don't think anyone is. So there's an opportunity here to really rethink where we are. There's also going to be a crying need for investment. So a way to invest smartly that would lead to future growth is investment in leading-edge technologies, not exclusively, but also green technologies and furthering that green transition. Because the virus is a challenge. But make no mistake, the methane hasn't gone away. The CO2 is still there. And you either deal with it or it will deal with you
3: but my, my concern about this line of argument whoever is putting it is i was reading a leader in the new york times i thought sort of came into this category recently which is you take a bunch of things you want and you're in favor of and then you say well this is the time we can't go back to the old normal and so now is the time for my brilliant plan right. <laughs> No, it's absolutely. The, whether it's the green new deal whether it is i want bigger and more active government it, it is for itchy fingered centre-left and even more left uh, takers on the economy, it's the perfect time, right? Because, <laughs> But it's not to say that your solutions are necessarily the right ones. It doesn't have to be a bit testing about just coming up with the old list of things that people might like and saying, and now is the time.
1: I don't think it's about politics at all. And quite seriously, uh, I'm a petrolhead. I watch Top Gear In Florida, I've got a Mustang. I drive it around. If I could carry on like this, I would. I've I've never actually said shut down capitalism. I am not a socialist. I'm a social democrat. I get markets. But at the end of the day, I think that it's absolutely pointless arguing with physics. Uh, That's not a preference. It's not a question of, well, you just want that because you like this. I would rather we didn't have to do any of this stuff, to be perfectly honest. Yes,
3: but you don't, you can be, you can believe firmly in man made, the contribution of, of man made climate change to global warming and still have different views on the Green New Deal. It's not that it tells you, it's a bit like saying, trust the science. There is not one single view that tells you exactly what to do. The choices then lie ahead of you.
1: I think that's absolutely correct. And that's why we have politics. It's also why science and politics really shouldn't be made up, uh, mixed up. Because uh, as Hannah Arendt once put it, politics is about arguing over morals, and we should be allowed to do this. So I think that that is quite correct. However, it is my side of the fence, not because I think it's, let's say, politically preferable, but because I think it's sensible policy.
3: And what about the institutions that we will need to remake? Neither of us can, none of us uh, uh, listening or observing this, can predict how this pans out. We need to be prepared to pivot, perhaps prepared to question some of our own views. Would you agree with that too?
1: Oh, absolutely. But again, you know, probably my preferences are coloured in a slightly different way. I'll give you an example from sitting here in the United States. The United States healthcare system costs twice as much as everyone else and delivers on average worse outcomes unless you're at the very top end. It's also funded by insurance contributions from people in work. They're not in work. Those insurers are bust. One way or another, that set of institutions is going to have to find a new funding basis. And that's probably going to be similar to the ones that every other advanced economy has, which includes a large single payment system. Now, we can say, to go back to the climate change example, well, that's just your preference. It's like, well, that's true. But you have a broken set of institutions. You either decide to fix them or, or you don't. And if you don't, that's when trouble starts.
3: But some of those arguments, and we won't talk in detail about healthcare, I think at this point, will still, any objections that have been put forward to changing to a single payer or sort of any more kind of centralised form of a healthcare system are going to recur. And I think we perhaps tend to forget that when people say, I can see the road ahead, I can see where I should think the policy should go. But let's talk about whether the institutions that we have are up to snuff, what will have to change about them, as well as perhaps about the pivot in our own arguments, or whether we get something that we want across the line, or or it, it turns out when we talk to you in 10 years' time that some of it happened and some of it, it didn't. Where do you think the institutions will be by then?
1: I think that there will be either much more command and control, which is what we see in the more authoritarian responses of places like China, Singapore, etc., It's very difficult to build Scandinavian societies, Scandinavian levels of trust, and Scandinavian welfare states. And it's much easier to, if you will, residualize and rely on markets But we've been doing essentially those three things. I think what we will do is we will continue to do those things because the path-dependent nature of things is that Sweden will become more like Sweden. America will become more like America. But there are moments of change. I mean, if you'd said to me that Boris Johnson would embrace helicopter money and pay 80% of wages until we're out of this crisis, I would have given you very long odds. So I think that le- that is
3: true. Leadership, that is true. we're seeing, yeah. and, and we no longer think. I think politicians also feel that they can turn around, yes, and embrace a different position that they have. And I suppose, as an economist, you probably welcome this. You said they have wriggle room, perhaps, to change their mind. And, and also, but, is that one yes. small upside of this terrible crisis?
1: I think it's more than a small upside. I think it's the beginning of getting out of a set of constraints that we put on ourselves that are no longer applicable. And if you think about central bank independence, the entire rationale for it was to avoid an inflationary crisis. There's no inflation anywhere. The problem we face is deflation. None of these central banks have hit their inflation targets in 10 years. So what are they doing instead? They're doing things that they've never been asked to do, which is to support all asset prices and buy everything. I think this this opens up moments in which democratic governance can begin to question technocratic governance in a non-populist way and say, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And I think that's inherently healthy.
3: Mark, that seems seems at least a mildly promising note on on which to end. And thank you for joining us.
1: I, I like to be mildly promising.